0: I will invite you to open a copy of the Bible or to look at a copy of the scripture. It's really important. We are a Bible saturated church. At least that's what we believe God is making us into more and more. We want the Bible to be everything, uh, that is, that is guide everything, direct and, and control everything that we do and say. So we, we give, Serious attention to the very words of the text. So, the text that we're going to look at this morning is Galatians chapter 1. The book of Galatians. And if you're using a house Bible, that will be page 972. 972. I actually have a page number, but you can look at the page across from it. Alright, Galatians 1 this morning. The Gospel. The Gospel. The Gospel is the central message of the Christian faith. It is the news, the good news, that God is reconciling the world to Himself through His Son, the Lord Jesus, by His substitutionary death on the cross in the place of sinners, and by His Resurrection from the grave. The good news is that God is in Christ reigning over all things for the eternal good of His people. And that good news comes to us in and through Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. I said earlier, if you want to say the gospel in one word, you can say it is Christ. If you have Christ, you have good news. It is by God's gracious union of us, His uniting of us in the Holy Spirit to the Son of God that we have all of the blessings that belong rightly to Jesus Christ the Lord. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ those who are united to Jesus by faith, and those who are separated from Jesus. And if separated from Jesus, then separated from God. God who is life and love and purity and holiness and goodness. The Bible teaches us that God is announcing good news. I'm standing here this morning as a herald on His behalf of the good news. And the good news is Christ Jesus. And if you have Christ by faith, then you have all of the blessings of God's salvation, His forgiveness, His life that's within Him. Paul is writing this letter about the Gospel. And that message, the Gospel message, is so important. I mean, it is so foundational. It is non-negotiable so that any deviation from that Gospel must be confronted and confronted in the strongest of terms. Human beings are always tempted to add something to Christ. That's the way we are. We all have this sort of sense in our fallenness, in our rebellion against God, that there is something... That we can do, that we must do to add to Christ for God's favor upon us. And this church, these churches in that ancient Roman province of Galatia were struggling with the temptation to accept a perversion, a distortion of the gospel. False teachers. Were infiltrating the churches in those that ancient um, area with a false gospel, and one of the big elements, as we looked at the last couple of weeks, one of the big elements of that false gospel was that it required circumcision. Circumcision in the flesh, in the body, it was an ancient rite or ritual that God did give to the people. In the Old Testament, to be a part of the people of God meant to be circumcised, to be in a family that was circumcised. But the thing that Paul is dealing with here among these churches in Galatia is the claim by some of these false teachers that a person must be circumcised Beyond just having Christ, a person must be circumcised in order to be saved by the gospel. And Paul is writing this letter to set the record straight so that those people and that you people, that all of us could rightly understand the gospel and understand its significance and grasp the unfolding of the gospel throughout the entirety of the scriptures. I pray that the unpacking of this letter might be to the end for our salvation, for your salvation, and for you to continue on in the one true faith, the one true gospel, and that it might be a help to you as you recognize and rescue people from false messages of unfounded hope. Because the only hope for all of humanity is in Christ. It is in the Gospel. Well, our text for this morning begins in the 11th verse of that first chapter. Galatians 1 verse 11 And i just read the first two verses to start here. He says, take note of the text again, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice the first word of that first verse, that 11th verse there. And it is the little word for, which indicates that this section that he's about to, uh, the section of the letter that he's about to uh, embark on, is something that supports what he has said earlier. And if you look at verse 11, you'll notice the subject that he's really addressing here is this. Verse 11, the subject that he has in mind that he wants to talk about to them is the gospel that was preached by me. The the message that I gave to you. The message that I preach everywhere I go. I want to talk about that. Now that in turn is a reference back to something that he said earlier. Remember, this is... The four here is indicating that we're supporting something he said earlier about the gospel that he, Paul, is preaching. And that's a reference back to verse 8. So if you'll just go back up to verse 8, you'll see a really strong statement that Paul had made about his gospel, his message. He says there, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, a message that is... Contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be what? Accursed. And that word accursed, anathema, we looked at last week, that is a really strong word. That is condemnation in the strongest possible terms. It is a curse of utter destruction by God in the final judgment. It is almost like saying God, damn that person. May God consign him to hell. I said there's a really strong, really strong statement for Paul to make. And I want you to be clear here this morning that Paul is not making that kind of strong denouncement on unbelievers in general here, or merely on a person who's following a false gospel or on a person but he he is making that kind of st- statement about a person who is knowingly unrepentingly teaching a false message and leading other people astray he said now that kind of person may he be condemned and consigned to hell and he says that because that person is already condemned but now as long as they live they are leading others along with them into the fires of God's judgment. So rightly so, he speaks with such um, strong language. We must be opposed to a false gospel that leads people under the judgment of God. We must be opposed to that kind of gospel in the strongest possible terms. Now, all of that brings up um, what I think is a reasonable question, which would be, what kind of arrogance would it take to make that kind of statement? What kind of arrogance would it take for somebody to say, you either listen to my gospel or go to hell? You either agree with me or it's the judgment of God for you. Right? Doesn't that seem, uh, I mean, that seems like to a lot of people, I think on the service, like a pretty arrogant statement to make. It's either my way or you're going to be condemned. Paul said, if, 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 if it's any other gospel than what I'm preaching to you, let him be accursed. And I will say this, it would be arrogance if the gospel were Paul's own idea. If the gospel where it was his own interpretation or his own message of his, from his own mind. But in fact, Paul, in this passage, is going to say the exact same thing that Peter does in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 20 and 21. Peter also says this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. You get that? If it's Scripture... It's not someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy, he says, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what Peter says about the Scriptures. And this, in fact, is what Paul is going to say. The whole point of this text... Is to say that Paul's gospel is nothing less than God's gospel. Paul's message is God's message. It didn't originate with Paul. It didn't originate with any of the apostles. It didn't originate with any man anywhere, but it originated with Christ himself. And if Paul's, if Paul's message is God's own message, then any man who perverts that does so to his everlasting damnation. Right? You see now why he could and should make that kind, that strong kind of statement. So that's where he's going. Now, verse 11, then that four there, as I said, introduces an assertion. That is an assertion that The gospel is not Paul's, it's not from any man, but it's from God. And that assertion then is Paul's justification for having made such an extraordinary statement back in verse 8. And any deviation from the gospel demands divine condemnation because it is not man's gospel. And Paul insists in verse 12, he insists in verse 12, that he did not receive the gospel message from any man. He was not taught it, but he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So, that means, then when we hear him say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I delivered to you, as of first importance, that which I also received, how that Christ died, we we understand by this text that he's not saying that he received it from the traditions of men, passed down to him from other men, but he received it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 13, I want you to see where this goes from here. All right, Verses 11 and 12 are his main assertion. In verse 13, there's another four. You see that at the beginning of the verse? And what he's doing in verse 13 is that he is going to introduce, this four introduces his testimony, his own personal story. It introduces his testimony in support of that assertion in verses 11 and 12 that the gospel is not his, it didn't come from him, it came from God. All right. He's going to make two real significant points in the course of the telling of his uh, life story. Two really powerful um, points about the apostolic message, that is the gospel message given to us through the apostles, one of whom was Saul or Paul. And the first is this, that this testimony Is given as evidence. Paul's testimony is being given as evidence of the independence, the independence of his apostolic testimony to the gospel. All right? He's going to tell his story, and it's going to support the idea of the independence of his testimony or his apostolic witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at verse 13 then how this unfolds. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Most of you are familiar with Paul's life. Maybe some are not. He was a uh, very zealous Jew. He says, I was actually someone who persecuted, he says, the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now that's an interesting thing to say, because you know Israel was the Church of God, and he's saying, "But I had my I w- my eyes were closed to who was the real church, and these gatherings of believers in Jesus Christ, I did not believe that they were the true church because they were believing in someone who was a false Messiah, a false prophet, as Paul understood it. That is, Jesus of Nazareth, he believed, was a false teacher in the beginning. That was his his life. And he was so zealous for what he felt was the truth that he persecuted, actively persecuted what he thought was false. All of which is to remind us, of course, that a person can be incredibly zealous, can be really religious can be really in earnest about his faith and be completely wrong and be fighting against the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and against God. But this is amazing, and and Brother John read it earlier. Uh, He doesn't go too much into depth into the story here, but we read from Luke's account about how Jesus Christ Himself the risen, uh, the, the crucified, buried, and now risen Jesus, who's ascended into heaven, sort of pulled back the, the screen of heaven, as it were, and showed himself to Paul while he was on that road to Damascus to persecute Christian churches. And Christ Jesus spoke to him. He manifested the brightness of his glory to him such that Paul was struck blind But it's the kind of blindness that helps you see, amen? It's the kind of blindness to all that he thought was right and true and going his own way to where God began to open his eyes to what was real and what was the truth. And Jesus said, you are persecuting me, the risen, reigning Messiah of God. It's me that you're fighting against. And then his eyes began to be open. And, and here's, here's his account now, beginning, continuing on in verse 15. Look again at the text. Chapter one, verse 15. And when, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Speaking of that experience on that road when Jesus was manifest to him, he says, in order that I might preach him, Jesus, among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Here's his point, right? I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before I was, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. He wants us to see, first of all, that his call and his conversion did not come through any human testimony. Paul is saying, my call, when I was called by Christ, when I was converted to Him, that did not come by any human testimony. Now, I want to ask you this. Who led you to the Lord? Who led you to Christ? Maybe there was somebody... In your life, that God used as an instrument to, to teach you the gospel. Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a preacher. But I would imagine for most of us that God used some human agent to teach us the good news, to lead us to Christ. I want to ask you this: who led Paul to Christ? <laughs> who taught Paul the gospel? The answer is no one. It was Christ himself. I mean, no human, no mere human being. It was God himself. Paul's conversion was a particularly dramatic illustration of the sovereign grace of God. He speaks of God who set him apart even before he was born. And God doing a miraculous work for which, I mean, you'd have to say there's just no human explanation. Why in the world would you have one man who one day was throwing Christians into jail and then the next day was preaching the same Jesus that he was persecuting the day before? I mean, it's a miracle. You can't, you can't just account for it in any other way except a divine, uh, work in this man. And of course, every conversion is a miracle of God's sovereign grace. It's just that Paul's was really a dramatic manifestation of that grace. What was unique about Paul's conversion and his understanding of the gospel is that God didn't send any person to speak the gospel to Paul. I mean, he sent Ananias after God has already begun really to open his eyes spiritually. Ananias opened his eyes physically by a, a miracle from God and and led him uh, to be baptized, but Paul was not really led to Christ by any person. As I say, his, his uh, coming to understand the gospel was unique. Unlike um, you and I, Paul, in fact, himself will write, how shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard, and how will they hear unless someone goes and what? Preaches to them. But God himself taught Paul the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. And so Paul writes, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I didn't go and say, hey, explain to me this gospel. He said, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. He's explicitly denying that he learned the gospel from the other apostles. Rather, he says, I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, the truth is we don't really know much of anything about Paul's time um, that he makes reference to here in Arabia. Um, We don't even quite know where he went. Arabia was a large area back in those days and considered to run all the way across half the Middle East. So nobody knows quite for sure where he went. Apparently, he was in Arabia, at least off and on for you know parts of three years. In Acts chapter nine, Luke tells us that uh, when, when he was first converted after leaving Ananias, he first went to Damascus, up in Syria, in the northern part of Israel, and in Damascus, he began to preach Jesus, the Son of God, in the, the synagogues. Brother John read it for us this morning. The Jews there plotted to kill him. (laughs) They plotted to kill the one who was just a few days before plotting to kill Christians. And so he escaped at night. Remember the story? He left there. He went out into Arabia. Luke doesn't really record anything about that in the book of Acts. But it seems to be a time when Paul was pretty much alone. When he was just there with God and the scriptures that he had learned and studied from his youth and maybe it was there over those years that god taught him more of the gospel before he finally then returned to damascus to continue to preach but not only was his conversion a testimony that or an evidence that his his Testimony came from God and not from men. But secondly, his authority, he says, was not conferred on him. His authority to proclaim the gospel was not conferred on him by any human intermediary. Look at verse 18. Then after three years, he says, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. It's another name for the apostle Peter. He says, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie, he says. Then verse 21, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing. Hearing it said that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Paul's continuing to argue for the independence of his authority, his message. And he argues it, first of all, based on the the length of time that elapsed before he ever met with any of the other apostles. He said, there were three years that passed before I ever went and met with any of the apostles. Three years he spent preaching the gospel up in Syria, in Arabia. Secondly, he says that there was a relatively short time that I was even in Jerusalem that first time. He says it was 15 days he was there, just a little over two weeks. Not enough time to be taught a whole system of doctrine from those men. In Acts chapter 9, Luke records that Barnabas, during that time, tried to introduce him to some of the Judean churches, um, but they were, you can understand, rightly nervous about having him come in. Maybe he was um, putting on a pretense in order to find out who was uh, really a follower of Christ in order to throw him into jail. So... Some of that was going on during those 15 days. Um, Barnabas uh, finally set up some meetings um, while he was there with Peter, with Cephas, and with James, the Lord's brother. And Barnabas probably did a lot of the talking there, uh, I'm sure, as they were still probably a little skeptical of this newbie Christian, and especially one who was just so long before adamantly against the gospel. But he says that he never met with all the apostles while he was there. So again, he says, listen, it was three years before I even went to hear the other apostles. When I got there, I only spent three days. And thirdly, his independence is seen from his limited contact with the other apostles while he was in Jerusalem. Um, As I said, he met with a couple, but never met with all of them. And finally by his lack of direct familiarity with the churches of Judea. Those churches where the gospel was first being preached, where the gospel was most well-known, he, he hardly spent any time at all with those people. His was a whole different um, story. It was a whole different path. All of this, you know, all the way along, what he's emphasizing is that he did not receive the gospel message from any human authority. He's really supporting his initial statement up in verses 11 and 12. He received it independently, directly from God, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, he wants to make it clear that his message, his gospel, is not his own. It's not man's gospel. It is God's gospel. However, he also recognized that if his message was actually true, and if the other apostles' message was actually true, then one thing that you know is that they're not going to what? They're not going to contradict, right? If his message is the only gospel, and their message is the only gospel, it, they're going to be in agreement, because they both are God's gospel, and God doesn't lie. And so, verse uh, chapter 2 now, chapter 2 and verse 1 He continues on with his story. He says, then after 14 years, so here's at least another 10 years from his last visit to Jerusalem, 14 years perhaps from his conversion. uh, 14 years, he says, then I went again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me, and I went up because of a revelation. That's probably a reference to uh, in Acts 11. You may remember the account that some prophets uh, came up from Jerusalem to, um, to, to uh, Antioch, and there was one of the prophets whose name was Agabus, and God had given him a, a divine revelation that there was going to be a famine in the area, and so he warned them, and one of their big concerns was for the brothers and sisters down in Judea. For whatever reason, they had a real um, concern for their well-being. And so the church in Antioch took up up a collection, a financial offering, and they said, let's send it down to the needy brothers and sisters down there during this time of famine, um, or the time of famine that's going to come based on this prophecy. And they commissioned Paul and Barnabas to take the offering down to Judea. But... While they sent him down for that, Paul took the opportunity to establish something else. And this is really the second really significant thing about Paul's testimony or the apostolic testimony. Paul took this opportunity down in this second visit to Jerusalem to establish the harmony of his apostolic testimony with that of the other apostles. Right? we're both preaching the gospel, it should be the same gospel. This is chapters 2, chapter 2, verses 3 and following. Paul knows that his gospel is from Jesus Christ, but he also knew that it was crucial for the furtherance of that message that people know that his message was also their message, that it was essentially the same gospel. And so, in the middle of verse 2, he continues the story. Middle of 2, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I set before them, the leaders in Jerusalem, though privately I set it before those who seem to be influential in the church, he said, I set before them the gospel, the message that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So he wants to be clear that the gospel is Christ alone, that that gospel is being proclaimed, and it is the true gospel. Don't need to add anything to it. In fact, he, he you see in the next one, we'll come back to this perhaps next week, he says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, which may be a reference, as I mentioned last week, to that circumcision party, Because of these false brothers who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. So that, here's his motivation, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And verse 6, he says, and from those who seem to be influential, and he says what they... What they were makes no difference to me, but God shows no partiality. In other words, you know, he did, he, Paul wasn't doubting their leadership or their apostolic authority, but he didn't make them personally to be infallible. In fact, he's going to have to deal with Peter in the next chapter. He's going to talk about a time when he had to deal with Peter who was tempted to compromise the gospel. So the whole point of this is that the ultimate authority is not these apostles, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, he he goes to those, he says in the middle of verse 6, he said, those who seem to be influential, and they added nothing to me. They didn't make him an apostle. Christ made him an apostle, right? Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry, the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And he says in verse 9, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars of the church, when they perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. In fact, the very reason that they had come in the first place. The most influential of the apostles in Jerusalem, the most influential of the leadership of the church, the pillars of the church, Recognized after talking with the apostle Paul, after talking with Barnabas, they recognized three things. Number one, they recognized that Paul had been given the same gospel. Paul had been given the same gospel. Notice verse seven. It says, They saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel. The gospel to the circum, to the uncircumcised. Non-Jewish. Just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to go to the circumcised. Paul's message is not the gospel and Peter's is the law. They're both preaching the gospel. The gospel to the un, it's not the gospel to the uncircumcised. It's as if that's something and then the gospel to the circumcised is something different. They're not two different Gospels. In fact, remember back in chapter 1, verse 7, he says that there is not another Gospel. Any other Gospel is just a perversion of the Gospel. Paul did not preach Christ alone, and then the other apostles were preaching Christ plus something. They're preaching the same Gospel. And the apostles recognize that. In verse 8, Not only did they have the same gospel, but they were both empowered by the same God. Verse 8, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. This is further proof that their messages are in harmony. Because remember last week, Back in chapter 1, verse 6, he said, if you turn to another gospel, you're actually deserting God Himself. Remember that? He made that point. And now he says, they recognize that we were both given this message by God. We were both serving with the power of God. We're both preaching the same message, both called by the same God and empowered by Him. Different audiences, but the same message and the same power. And then thirdly, in verse 9, They were both recipients of the same grace. Verse 9, he says James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. These other apostles recognized, they recognized in Paul and in Barnabas the same apostolic grace that was at work in them. They recognized the call of Christ upon Paul, upon Saul. It was the same call that they had heard all those years ago when the Lord Himself walked along the shores of the Sea of Galilee and said, follow me, Peter. They said, this man has the same grace of God on his life. He's heard the voice of the Savior just as we have. He too has experienced the grace of God of God, though he would be one who was born out of his time, as he would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, kind of late born, yet they recognized the same gracious voice of their master in his gracious call. And so in verse 9, here's the conclusion of that. Second visit to Jerusalem when Cephas and, or James, excuse me, and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. They received us. They acknowledged our message. They gave their consent and approval. Not that Paul, remember his whole argument is not that I needed it. I got my message directly from the Lord Jesus. There's no doubt that I am preaching not my own word, but his. But nevertheless, these men also recognized that his message was in harmony with theirs. They recognized this same message, the same God, the same calling, the same grace that he had been given, Barnabas had been given by Christ. Paul would later write to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 14, that when prophets came to give a message from God. He told them, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. And then he said down in verse 32, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author, uh, is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God's not giving one message over here. This is the way to come to me. And another message over here that's in contradiction to that message what he's revealing to Paul, what he reveals to Saul independently is the same message in essence that he is revealing to all of the other apostles. And now there is this real confirmation from God in this divine meeting that their messages were in harmony. All of that to say this, right here are the two things that Paul is really pointing out in this story. One, the independence of his apostolic testimony, right? He did not learn his message from any of the other apostles. And secondly, the harmony of their apostolic testimony, that his message was essentially the same as the message being preached by Peter, James, by John, and all of the other apostles. All of which then, friends, for us is really powerful testimony of the truthfulness of the apostolic message, of the gospel, of the scriptures. Think about this. The bulk, the bulk of the New Testament scripture was written by one of those four men Paul, or Cephas, Peter, or James. Or John, these witnesses, these men, their testimony about the gospel, their witness, their witnesses were independent witnesses, and at the same time, they were corroborating witnesses. Right? That's what you want when you go to court. Right? You want independent, corroborating witnesses. So you go to court and you don't say, Judge, we have three witnesses. Now, of course, only one guy saw actually what happened, but he told the other two guys, and so those are our witnesses. The judge is going to say, what? That's just hearsay. We're going to dismiss that as evidence, right? You want independent witnesses. At the same time, it's no good to come into the court and have three truly independent witnesses if they all get up and say something completely different from one another. That doesn't help your case at all. But the fact is that Paul is making the point that his testimony to the gospel is an independent testimony and yet was in perfect harmony with the message that was being preached all along by the other apostles. Now the independence of these apostles, of their testimony, is manifest if you read the Bible. Paul doesn't speak exactly like James. Right? Have you noticed that? Paul helps you to understand James in a broader context, and James helps you understand Paul. And likewise, Peter helps you understand John, and vice versa. Hinduism Hinduism, has certain writings that are classed as divine writings, and others as writings from men that are nevertheless authoritative on some level. But the divine writings are said to be eternal, impersonal, and authorless. In contrast the Bible. The Bible is a very human book in one sense, right? You read these different authors and their testimony and and the way that they say things, and they're all different. There are, first of all, there are multiple authors in the Bible, and each has his own particular style. Even in the original languages, you know, sometimes you can read an author in Greek, and he, you just can tell he sounds different from this other author over here. He uses different um, terminology, different vocabulary. The authors make different selections when they're telling the same account. They include different elements and different details. They make different emphases. And yet, friends, here is the amazing thing. They all speak in beautiful harmony with each other all the way through. Paul and James complement each other while saying things in different ways. And John, Peter, and so forth. The Bible is an outstanding, an astounding Testimony written in 66 different books, we call them, 66 different sections by dozens of authors, human authors, maybe some 40 human authors, written uh, not all at one time, but over the span of Hundreds and hundreds of, fifteen, nearly 1,500 years. It wasn't something where everybody kind of got together in the same place and said, all right, let's figure out our story. Let's get this thing straight, right? What are you going to say? I'm going to say this. Let's make sure our, our accounts match. No, it was, it was written in three different continents, in many different countries, in three different languages. That's the book that you have in front of you. That's the apostolic testimony. The Book of Mormon comes to us from Joseph Smith. The Quran comes to us through Muhammad. There is no need for a supernatural explanation of a book's unity when it comes to you through a single person. But the Bible, the Bible is written by many different authors made up of all different parts, and yet all speaking with the same voice. Because it's a divine voice standing behind all of those human voices. And there have been now thousands of years that people have had to scrutinize the Bible. It's not something that was recently published, right? That we're still trying to see if it all matches up. I mean, this this thing has been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years, various parts of it. The complete Scriptures for now 2,000 some years. And people have poured over it. You can mark it down. People have poured over it looking for one clear, uh, unassailable contradiction. And if there were such a thing, the Bible would long ago have been widely discredited. But instead, it has shaped the history of the world. There are four Gospels. Four sort of kind of autobiographical accounts of the life of Jesus, right? You know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All writing testimonies of the events of the life of Christ, and sometimes telling them from different perspectives. You know there are books out there that you can buy that are called A Harmony of the Gospels? Because what they're recognizing is that all of these four Gospels, while telling the story of Jesus from different vantage points and emphasizing different things and including different materials, are all really telling uh, an account that harmonizes with the others. You ever hear a chord that's just beautiful harmony? Somebody strikes all of those strings together and it's just like, you just walk away and you say, wow, that was just beautiful. That was a beautiful chord. Sometimes my wife's playing the piano and she'll put in a kind of an unusual chord that just absolutely fits at the right moment in that song and you're like, that was beautiful. That's the Bible. That's the Gospels. That's the apostolic testimony in beautiful harmony. Of course, you, many, most people know that the Bible's divided into halves. We think of it that way, right? There's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament. And yet what you find is that as you read across that divide, that the story just continues. It's really kind of the same thing coming out in new and beautiful ways in all of its fulfillment. It's like, it's like a seed over here and, and a blossomed tree over here. It's beautiful. Years ago, I ran across a uh, visualization that somebody did. I think I've showed it to you on other occasions, but a visualization of the interconnectedness of the Bible. They're going to put it on the screen. And on that, uh, in that visual is kind of a, a bar graph at the bottom. And every one of those little lines at the bottom represents a chapter in the Bible in consecutive order as they're found in the canon of the Scripture. And the length of each of those lines refers to how many cross-references link that chapter to another chapter in the Bible somewhere. And each of the 63,779 cross-references that they identified in the Bible is connected to the chapter that it refers to by a single arc. The color of that arc corresponding to the distance between Those two chapters. And when I first saw that, I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I see when I read the Bible. Just all of this interconnectedness, all of this beautiful harmony, all of this powerful testimony that this book, like no other book, is the very Word of God. The 17th century Baptist Catechism states that one of the ways, one of the ways they say that we know that the Bible is the Word of God is by the unity of its parts. That's what Peter is saying. That's what Paul is saying. Saul is saying here. He's saying, I got the gospel. I got it straight from God. These other apostles, they're preaching the gospel. And while we have different emphases, we're preaching to different audiences, we use different terminology sometimes, the truth is we're saying the same thing. Because it's the same God, there is a beautiful harmony, and unity in the gospel message. Now, if that is the case, if it is the case that the Bible is not just the work of human hands, human pens, but it is in fact the very Word of God, then there is a great eternal danger in resisting it or in perverting it. And this is what he's writing to warn them about. May there be none of us who would sit here resistant to a testimony, an apostolic testimony that is in fact the very Word of the Creator God about how to be reconciled to Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I admonish you. I encourage you to trust. To trust that Gospel. To entrust yourself to this book that is filled with independent witnesses, yet all bearing a single message, speaking that single Gospel. That Gospel that is not from man, but is in fact the very Gospel of God. Would you join me in a moment of prayer and reflection? We're going to take a moment again for a silent time of prayer and and thinking about what we've just heard. And I want to admonish you to consider seriously the claims that Paul was making here about his own testimony and then by broader implication the claims of the, the Bible itself. I want to just admonish you to put your trust in the Word of God and in the God of this Word to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Gospel is this, he who has the Son of God has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Oh, I pray that today you would come into life and that if you have His life in you, that you would see it strengthened renewed, encouraged by the uniqueness of the Scripture's testimony, the very testimony of God. May your heart be encouraged today. Heavenly Father, guide us as we think and pray. Open open our hearts. We pray that You would convince every person here of the truthfulness of this Word, this book, and of the Gospel message, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.